This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. And so at the end of chapter 20, we have the blind man calling for Jesus to heal them. So the very last passage, just before you know, the disciples and Jesus enter Jerusalem, is this cry for help, a cry for Jesus to heal their blindness. And what happens when their blindness is healed? The blind man, the blind man who, the, the men who were once blind, uh, they were now following Jesus. I think, friends, it is the same for us. Before we can truly follow Jesus, we need our blindness to be cured. We need God to show us, to open our eyes so that we can see Jesus clearly. The song that we sang together as a prayer, show us Christ. That must happen. God must open our eyes, then we can follow him. Why don't we ask God to do that? Father, please work in us that we may see. And thank you that for many of us we have come to see something of who Jesus is. But Father, our discipleship is slow and inconsistent. So Father, we pray that through your word and by your spirit working powerfully, God, you will continue to open our eyes more that we may see more clearly and deeply just who your Son is. Enable us to follow him more faithfully, we pray. Amen. Now, I've learned from uh, Philip Jensen that the theme of this section, you know, chapter 19 and 20, is all about the reversal of values. That's what you can see in the outline. Uh, the last will be first. And the slave is the first. Right, so there's a, there's a reversal. Uh, what the world puts first, the kingdom of God puts as last. And what the, the world counts as last, the kingdom of God counts as first. And so we saw in chapter 19 that the little children, you know, those ones that have no status in society, that are despised even by the disciples. Jesus says, come to me, come to me. This is the kingdom of heaven. But the rich young ruler, the one who in the eyes of society is at the top. I mean, he's rich, he's young, he's probably handsome and, you know, regarded by society as, because of his religious conformity, that this one must be at the top. But as the story ends, he does not receive the kingdom of heaven. So there is a reversal of values happening here. Now, what's happening in chapter 20 in this uh, very strange parable is Jesus explaining. Jesus is explaining why the first will be last and the last will be first. So you See the parable, the way Jesus introduces it, he says the kingdom of heaven is like this landowner. And you must understand that the way things work at that time is the landowner would go out and he would go to a place where the day workers would gather and he knows how big his field is, so he would know how many he wants to employ. So he'll go out in the morning, you know, something like 6 a.m. and you know there'll be all the workers waiting, maybe some come earlier, some come a bit later. But those who are there, he would pick out the ones that he wanted, the number that he would need. And you see in the parable that 
the wage is arranged. Okay, you work for me one day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and I'll pay you the, you know, the standard rate, which is uh, denarius. Okay, let's say it's, you know, $120, something like that, okay? So, they went. Now, the strange thing about this landowner is he goes out again at noontime and at 3 p.m., okay? And the strangest thing of all, he goes out at 5 p.m., okay? Goes back to the same place and, you know, there are workers there who haven't been hired by anyone and he says to them, okay, you know, come, work for me. Now, the difference between the noon and 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. workers is that there is no wage arranged. He just says, okay, just work for me and I will do what's best for you. You know, just trust me, I'll do good by you. And so they went. Now, when it comes uh, 6 p.m. and the workday is ended, okay, so the, the landowner pays the workers. Okay, and very interestingly, he pays the 5 p.m. people first. And as you, you know, can see from the parable, the 5 p.m. people get paid the denarius, the standard wage for, you know, working one day. And uh, so, you know, you imagine you are the 6 a.m. people. You know? So 6 a.m., you've been working for him, you know, slaving under the hot sun, doing all the work. And so, you, you, you know, you, you imagine, right, you're standing in one line and the landowner wants to pay the, those who came last first. So, you know, just, hey! You know, you say to your other six, six people, he's giving them a denarius. And so, obviously, in your mind, you're thinking, wow, what will we get, right, when, when it comes to us? Because we've done so much of the work. But when it comes to the 6 a.m. people, they get paid also a denarius. And I think, understandably, understandably, right, if you're in their shoes, you know, we were in their shoes, we would also complain. So they grumbled against the landowner. I said, hey, Hey, you know, Taoke, uh, you know, how come we, we get the same as them? Look at them, you know, they are not even sweating. Their hair is still in place, you know, there's no, you know, wet marks under their armpit. Look at us, you know, we are already so dirty, my fingernails, I got all these cuts here from working. You know, how can we be paid the same thing? And then the landowner explains. Verse 13, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work? For a denarius. So the landowner sees right through what the workers are saying. Because in their grumbling, in their complaining, they're basically saying, it's so unfair. You are treating us so unfairly. But obviously, as the story was said, they agreed to work for a denarius. And that is what they were paid. The landowner continues his explanation. He says, verse 14, I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Now, what this parable is trying to teach is not, okay, not, not that everyone who enters the kingdom of God they will all receive the same reward. No matter what you do, no matter you know, how early or how late, you know, how long you've been serving Christ. Okay, that's not what it's teaching. Okay, because there are other passages make it very clear that there are 
different rewards. Okay, there are different rewards. Okay, so this is not teaching that. Okay, it's just standard. Okay, it's not teaching that. Rather, what it is teaching is we need to understand why it is that the landowner goes out at noon and then at 3 and then at 5 p.m. Okay, okay, maybe he goes out at noon. Like some landowners, they may go out at noon because they realize, oh, alama, you know, I hired a bit too little. You know, we won't get the work done in time. Okay, so he needs to go out and get some reinforcements. Okay, you know, that's understandable. But then, why go out at 5 p.m.? Because I mean, you know that the, the day is going to, you know, one more hour, you know, the, the sun is going to set. I mean, it can always work again tomorrow. I mean, the work can always be continued tomorrow. So the only reason why the landowner goes out and hires more at you know, noon and at, at 3 and at 5 p.m. is because he knows that if these day laborers don't get paid, then they might starve, their families might starve. So the landowner is actually being generous. The landowner is acting not because he needs it, but he's doing it because of grace. This parable is teaching that the way the kingdom of heaven is operating is not by what we deserve, but it is by God's grace. That's why the first can be last, the last can be first, because it is not operating according to the values of the world. It's not operating according to you know, things that we deserve, but it is by sheer grace. It is undeserved. Now, the reason why our responsive reading was to read the last part of chapter 19 uh, is because, you know, hopefully you notice that Peter is asking a question, you know, because Jesus just said, you know, the rich, it's impossible for them. And then Peter says, oh, what about us? You know, we have left everything to follow you. You know, so Peter is focusing on how much he has sacrificed. Okay, and so Jesus is answering Peter, you know, and at the end in verse 30, Jesus' answer says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. That's exactly, okay, not exactly, but it's the same thing that he says at the end of the parable. Okay, which means, which means what? Which means that the, you know, the, the person, you know, or the joker, okay, who put the big two zero in our Bibles, you know, separating this conversation has done us a disservice. Lah. Because it's actually one conversation. Jesus just, you know, took a breath to continue talking. And he's still answering Peter's question. So Peter is saying, hey, we, he's focused on his sacrifice. We have left everything. And Jesus wants to assure him, but in that assurance, there's also a mild rebuke. A mild rebuke in this parable. That don't think it is about what you have done to deserve it. Peter, remember that the way the kingdom of heaven operates is that it is by sheer grace. The only reason disciples can approach God is by sheer grace. So this is a parable that we as disciples need to hear. Because so often we come to God with this attitude, this attitude of God is so unfair. 
God, haven't I done this? God, haven't I served you faithfully? God, I mean, wh- wh- why is this happening to me? God, it is so unfair. We come to God with the attitude of, okay, we've done this, and we think that because of that, we deserve this, or we don't deserve this to happen to us. Why, why is this good thing happening to them? And when, when, when they're such a lukewarm Christian, I mean, we can come to God with all these attitudes. It can lead to uh, bitterness, it can lead to anger with God. Because we come with this attitude of, we think we deserve. We forget that it is by sheer grace. Whether it is, you know, how come that guy has a better job? And I'm more faithful in, in serving? Haven't I given up more, you know, to serve you in a youth group? How come, you know, this guy who, you know, is so lukewarm, hardly comes to church. And I, I mean, I, 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 my GPA is higher than him, and yet he gets a better job. God, why? Or how come that couple has kids? And we've been, we've been trying for so long, and it's so hard for us. Or how come this person managed to get married? Why am I still left on the shelf? You know, questions like these. Lord, I've served you. Don't I deserve? But then when we say that, we are forgetting. That the way the kingdom of God operates is by sure grace. What we deserve, the Bible tells us, the wages, the wages of sin is death. That is what we deserve. If we ever come to God and we want to talk about, okay, God, God, what I deserve, then we must remember that the Bible makes it clear that the wages, the things that we have worked for, our iniquity, our works in the darkness, our sin, that is what we have worked for. And the wages for that is death. And so we must realize, though it is hard, we must realize that even if, even if God takes away everything that we prize. Even if God does not answer every single of our prayers the way we want Him to, even if if He takes away everything, but by sure grace saves us in Christ. Friends, then isn't it true, one billion years from now, we will still be praising His glorious grace even if it takes away everything now. Because we are getting, when we are saved, we are getting more than we deserve. Tim Keller has put it this way, if Jesus didn't complain when he received a life infinitely worse than he deserved, and Jesus did, he, he, he received a life infinitely worse than he deserved, and he did not complain. How can I complain while I experience a life infinitely better than I deserve? Because the way God operates is by sheer grace. This theme of reversal continues. As we move into the next section, and you see in chapter 17 to, uh, sorry, verse 17 to 19, Jesus is talking about his death. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and for the third time, he's predicting what will happen there. You see the theme of reversal? I mean, we see it clearly in our king as well. 
You know, our king is so different from other kings. The way that he is crowned is that he is brought low. Brought to the lowest point before he is crowned. So that this theme of reversal continues. And so, if in the last passage in the parable, if the parable explains why, why the first will be last and the last will be first, okay, and it gives us the reason, because it is by sheer grace, then this section, this uh, section is giving us the example. So the parable gave us the reason, and now in this section we are given the example, the example of our king himself, the one who is greatest, and yet he went down lowest. So they are on their way, and uh, one thing to uh, try to understand is actually how close are we at this point in the passage to Good Friday? Okay, I mean, like we're reading, and for us, you know, it's just Numbers chapter 20, flipping pages. But when you actually look at the details of where they are geographically and how long it takes to get from one place to another, it is very likely that at this point in verse 17, we are eight days away. Can you, you know, just pause a moment and appreciate that fact? So it's just next week, you know, just, just one week more. You know, like imagine this is Thursday, and then next Friday, Jesus knows he's going to be hung on a cross. And so for the third time, he is preparing his disciples, telling them what will happen when they get to Jerusalem. And we are told in verse 20, okay, after Jesus uh, explains what will happen. Verse 20, Matthew says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. And you can see that the favor, the favor there is to grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And so at Bible study, we were, we were thinking, oh, you know, like, well, what's, what's happening? You know, did the disciples not understand what Jesus was saying? And said, yeah, yeah, like, I mean, clearly, clearly they didn't. I mean, like, it's like, Jesus is talking, and then the disciples, they're just thinking, oh, chapter 19, you know, we are promised we're going to have thrones, you know. And then Jesus is talking about his death, but, you know, they see his lips moving, but they're just thinking of his thrones, you know, the thrones that they're going to get. They just don't get it. Like the way sometimes we don't get it. And so Zebedee's, you know, the, the, the uh, Mrs. Zebedee comes and, you know, brings the two boys along and says, you know, hey, one at the left, one at the right. Now, when we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew captures the scene for us. Jesus is hanging on the cross and there are some women who are there. And... Uh, I mean, you can go back and look for yourself. And Mrs. Zebedee is mentioned. Okay, so she is there at the foot of the cross when Jesus is crucified. Now, when we get to Mark's gospel, Mark also records the same scene, except that he doesn't say Mrs. Zebedee. He actually says her name, which is, you know, I mean, if you need this for a Bible trivial quiz, you know, anytime in the future, her name is Salome. 
Okay, so Salome. Salome Zebedee, you know, something like that. Okay. And then when you come to John's Gospel, okay, John, when he records the women who are there, does not say Mrs. Zebedee and does not say Salome. Instead, John says the sister of Mary. Which means that Mrs. Zebedee is Jesus' auntie. Which means that uh, James and John, the two sons, is Jesus' cousins. Which means that this passage has just become a bit more interesting. No, it's just like, you know, my auntie come, come to me, you know, is she here? I don't think she's here. Okay, well, my auntie come, hey, you know, Man Kuong, you know, she always calls me Man, Man Kuong, you know, the church camp, you know, can I have this room, you know. Wow, then, you know, I mean, my auntie, right, okay, so, okay. so, you know, the auntie comes, bringing the cousins, and once, you know, the elder cousin, hey, come, one on the left, one on the right. And you can see that she's not being too demanding, because she leaves it up to Jesus, who's on the left, who's on the right. It's not too demanding, you know. He gets to choose who's on the left, who's on the right. Now notice how Jesus responds. She comes to him talking about sitting on thrones. Jesus responds by talking about drinking the cup. What is this cup? Jesus has pictured his suffering as drinking this cup. And in verses 17 to 19, he has spelt out to the disciples what this cup involves, that he will be handed over, he will be mocked and spit at and flogged, and he will die. That's his cup. And he has told the disciples, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross. And so when Mrs. Zebedee, when his auntie comes and says, you know, my sons, can they sit you know, with you in the kingdom? Jesus talks about the cup because it is costly. It is costly to follow Jesus. And so you want to follow me? You want to follow me so that you sit on the right and the left? Okay, can you, can you follow me? Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Because it is costly to follow me. And so they answer with, you know, some sort of false bravado, I take it. We can, they answered. And verse 23, Jesus says, You will indeed drink from my cup. Because Jesus knows that by God's grace, James and John will be enabled. Yes, at first they will fail, because the disciples will all desert. They'll all run away when Jesus is arrested but they will regain their discipleship. They will, they, will, they will get back on their feet. They will start following Jesus again. And the following of Jesus led to James being beheaded, led to John being exiled as an old man on a lonely island. They, you will indeed drink from my cup, Jesus says. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those they been be prepared by my Father. So it is God who will choose. And then at this point, verse 24, 
the rest of the disciples, you know, they get wind of this. And, you know, they were indignant with the two brothers. So at Bible study also, we, you know, tried to drill into this word. What, what, what does indignant mean? And then we said, okay, the Oxford Dictionary says, indignant means, become one. Okay. Okay, so they were, they were indignant. Okay. Yeah, Bible study, the, the dictionary is a bit funny. <clears throat> okay, see, you must notice that they are indignant, not because they are going, Hey, James, John, haven't you heard what Jesus talked about? You know, you know what will happen at the, at, when he goes to Jerusalem? I mean, haven't you heard? How, how, how can you come and talk about sitting? Okay, they are not indignant you know, with righteousness. They are indignant because how dare you play the family card? How dare you bring your mother along, you know, use this, you know, Jesus auntie, go and try and secure the, the, the top places for the boy come one, okay? And so Jesus has to call them all together. And in verse 25, he talks about the world. Talks about how, you know, you look at the world, you look at society around us, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the high officials exercise authority over them. This is the way it is with the world. If you have status, you will use it, you would, you know, use it to your advantage, make use of the people under you. If you have authority, you will exercise that authority uh, of the people who are under you. You know, that's, that's, that's the way of the world. But the kingdom of heaven is reverse. The kingdom of heaven is not like the world. Verse 26, not so with you. Not so with you. I still remember the day in New Testament class, my New Testament lecturer, when we were going through a similar passage like this in Mark's Gospel. He said, these words of Jesus, not so with you, needs to be put up in large, bright, neon sign. Not so with you. To remind us in the church, to remind leaders in the church, to remind those who have position in the church, to remind those who have some authority in the church, that we must not act like the world. Not so with you, Jesus says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. He's not chiding them. He's not castigating them for wanting to be great. No, it's okay. Good, strive for greatness, but there is such a reversal of values in the kingdom of heaven that the way to be great is to be a servant and to be a slave. And it's at this point that he gives his own example. Just as the Son of Man, there is no one greater than the Son of Man. And so how, how great was the Son of Man? He was our servant. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it is because the Son of Man has ransomed us, paid the ransom because of the wages of sin. We deserve death. Hell captive. 
under the, the curse of death. But the Son of Man, by serving us with His life, has ransomed us. That's why even though we, you know, God may take away everything we prize in this life, but if He has given us life, then we get more than we deserve. Then one billion years from now, we will still be praising His glorious grace. In preparing for this talk, I came across uh, a story of how this pastor illustrated this point, and I want to share with you. He, he read on a blog about this mother, mother with you know, two young kids, and she says that, okay, you know, only one morning a week, the kids are away and I get some me time. Okay, and the rest of the time is so busy. And so I really treasure that me time. Okay, so uh, when, it's, when, when it's that Tuesday morning, okay, I will go to my favorite you know, coffee shop, okay, and it's, it's in this food court. And next to my favorite coffee place, there is my favorite cookie place. Okay, so I will go there and I'll buy my coffee and I'll buy a bag of cookies and I will sit down and I'll read my book. Okay, just have that me time. And then one day she says, you know, she was doing that as usual, but the, the food court was a bit more crowded. So she had to share a table with, uh, you know, an elderly man. So as she was reading the book, um, she noticed that the, the elderly man reached into her bag of cookies and took one. And then she was like a bit too embarrassed. So she, she just, you know, she just glared at the man. And the man just smiled, you know, smiled, smiled at her and you know, ate his cookie. Then she, she glared at him and she, she took it like she's trying to say, this is my bag. She took the cookie and she ate. Then the, the man just, oh, you know, he just continued smiling. And he went back and forth like that, she says, for about five times. Until there was one cookie left. And then she said, the man took the cookie. And he had the audacity to break it in half and offer it to her. And at that point, she lost it. She said, she just grabbed her bag, took her book, and went off. And then after about 20 meters, she realized her bag of cookies was in her bag. <laughs> Uneaten, untouched. And then at that point, she realized, oh my goodness, the admiration that she has had for this man. You know, just, just, just the, the wow. Friends, all the cookies we have in this life we did not earn. All the good things we have in this life has been purchased by someone else. And so when we realize that, then with all the things God has given us, we will with gratitude, we will with generosity, Use the things God has given us to serve like His Son has done. May God help us. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.